Listener Production. Sean Zepps is an absolute delight. And through kindness and humour, he is making life better for queer kids all over Australia. Sean is a podcaster and a content creator. He is brilliant on Instagram if you want to hunt him down. And you can also hear him now on Listeners Come Out Wherever You Are podcast, where Sean talks to famous queer Australians about their coming out stories. I'm not going to lie to you. These conversations aren't always going to be pretty, right? This topic, much like these closets, they can be messy and they can be complicated. But if you come to me with an open, curious heart, I can promise you a better understanding of what it is like to come out wherever and whoever you are. Through that podcast, you also get the chance to get to know Sean himself, or at least just a little bit. He's a loving husband to Josh, a passionate dad to twins Stella and Cooper. He loves reality TV and drag queens, and he can't imagine life without sour gummies and bold sunnies. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Coming up next, Bron will jump into the studio for The Weekend List, where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is a really important and heartwarming conversation with Sean Zepps. Hey, Sean Zepps, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you for having me. Now, straight away from your first words, I believe you are not from these parts. Tell me about from whence you came. (laughs) Yes, unfortunately, I'm from America. I say unfortunately because you never know how people feel politically. I moved here during the Trump presidency, so it was seriously a hit or miss. Um, If people in Ubers ask me where I'm from, 50% of the time I just lie and say Canadian. It's so much easier. And Australians have a thing for Canadians. We feel like they're like us somehow. A hundred percent. And Australians do not have the same admiration for Americans all the time. Usually they look at me, think American and weirdly lump me with the Kardashians. And even though I'd like to think I'm as beautiful or as wealthy, that's simply not the case. <laughs> Definitely is beautiful. I'm not going to comment on your wealth though. Um, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about growing up in the States and what it was like for you. I had a really lovely upbringing. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was very involved in the church. It was a fundamental part of my upbringing. I, on a normal week, might be there three days a week. I was not just a member of the church. I was also a Eucharistic minister. I was a member of the choir on and off. I was a part of the theater group. I had all of our outings, our birthday parties, like it was just a huge, huge, huge part of my life. And so for the first 10 years, that was a really exciting element of my childhood. When I was 10, I realized that I was a homosexual. And so obviously anyone who knows the Catholic faith well will understand that homosexuals and God often do not get along so well. And so the part of my childhood that I loved most, which was this like beautiful relationship to my church and to the congregation and to my priest kind of came crashing down on me. But really I like to think of like those first 10 years as just carefree, joyous. I was a very flamboyant young kid and my mother in particular, but both of my parents just kind of embraced it. It was not a problem at all to them, even to this day when you ask them, 
how or why they could be so deeply religious, have this flamboyant son and not have it be a problem was because for them, dress, activity, actions um, had nothing to do with sexuality. And even if there was going to be an issue in air quotes with my sexuality, it just wasn't a problem for them because they really felt that God created everyone perfect in his image. And, and yeah, so they were just so accepting and they really allowed me to kind of express myself any way I wanted to, whether that be singing or dancing or dressing up in girls clothes. It really is just the turning point of realizing I was queer through the lens of religion, where from 10 onwards, I had a very different childhood. Mm. You know, I've spoken to a whole bunch of queer folk for this podcast before, and several of them have talked about the difficulty of their relationship with religion Mm. when they came out. But something that stands out to me about you is firstly how young you were but also how deeply entrenched your life was and how intertwined it was with the church mm. and who you were as a person. What was it like for a 10-year-old to have to go through those kind of questions in your head when so much of your life was enmeshed in your belief system? It's such a great question because I really do not believe that the average person is aware of how troubling indoctrination can be. For most people, when they think specifically modern people, young people, they think of homosexuality, they have a beautiful picture in their mind. Oh, you know, life might be a little bit harder for them, but they'll find love, they'll find friends, they'll find community, they're funny, they're in television, right? There's a much nicer modern kind of picture. But if you take a step back into the 90s, 80s, 70s, 60s, obviously, the propaganda, and I use that word purposely because there was a lot of like negative rhetoric happening globally around homosexuality was not positive. And so for the average person, religious or not, the idea of being gay meant a pretty terrible life. If you put that in one box and we'll revisit that shortly, and then you take a step into religion, young minds are insanely moldable. What you tell them to be true is fact, and they don't question it. Specifically, they don't question it if they're being told by their parents. The power of being a parent, and I can say this because I am one, is that you are a god in your child's life. What you say and do, they believe to be true. And so I, what I like to do for people who didn't, who weren't raised religious is just imagine that every single week, from the second you are born, you are brought into a gorgeous room, a cathedral with incense and happy people and books that when people touch it, sometimes they cry, it it clearly moves them. All around you are these people who are looking up at this altar and literally they're moved to tears, they're inspired, they're standing up and singing. When you're a young person and the synapses are connecting in your mind, You don't know what's happening, but you know it's good and you know it must be true. And so when the words are spoken out of the mouth of a priest into your earlobes as a young person, it has those words much higher weight than any other word you will hear. And so for me at a young age, I was basically just blown away, inspired, excited, It was such a gorgeous thing every Sunday to go there and to have that consistency, to have that repetition. It might feel monotonous through parts of your young life, but basically what's happening is you're hearing these messages every single week, or in my case, multiple times a week. 
And so it's becoming a cemented part of not just who you are, but your belief system, your character, how you see the world. At a young age, you start questioning things. Where did I come from? Where do we go afterwards? Where do babies come from? And when you're raised in a religion, there's answers to those questions that are basically, you can't mess with them. It's always God. Where do we come from? God created us. And where do the trees come from? The animals, God did that too. And where are the planets? He did that as well. And where do we go afterwards? Well, God's gift to us is eternal life. And so you're going to go on and you're going to live forever. And so you start to have such security and warmth in knowing that there's only really one answer. It's always God. And therefore, if that is all true and how we know it to be true is this book. And in that book, there's a few sentences that say who you are, a homosexual, is a sin and you will go to hell for the rest of your life, why then would a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old, an 11-year-old, a 15-year-old, why would they not have the fear of God struck in them that who they are is terrible, it's a problem, and because you're going to go to hell for the rest of your life, why would you want to live on earth right now anyways? And so that's how I try to paint it for you, like the power of that structure, the power of the words, why it gets ingrained in young people and why it can be so problematic for people who are queer. It it sort of speaks to me about the power of the stories that we're told, right? The stories Mm. that we're told by our parents, the stories we're told by our community, by a priest. And when those stories move from being stories that we're told to stories that we tell ourselves internally and that we repeat. And then when there's something inside of you that starts to tell a different story that contradicts what you've been told so many times and what you've thought yourself, I'm trying to get my head around Mm. just how complex that might be. But I really want to give 10-year-old you just the biggest hug. (laughs) So do I. Absolutely. You say something really powerful that I haven't actually thought a ton about, but it's important specifically if parents are listening or or soon-to-be parents or one-day parents. My parents told me a lot that who I was was perfect and that God loved me no matter what. And my parents knew I was different when I was two that's not a joke. Like they were a hundred percent sure. Like, okay, this kid is clearly incredibly flamboyant and therefore is likely to be gay. So they constantly, constantly, constantly were trying to plant the seed that don't worry, baby. God loves you no matter what. What you said that struck me is it's our individual relationship to those stories that's problematic. It was really my specific relationship to not wanting to let down my family, to not wanting to let down God So that even when I came out and my mom to this day looks me in the eyes and said, God loves you, it's hard for me to believe her. It's my relationship to the story. I have decided that those words and that teaching is so problematic that I started to question every other part of the larger religion. When one sentence destroys a large part of your childhood, and I'm still struggling to this day to unpick who I really am through the lens of who I decided to be back then. It's really, you start to question everything. And so I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like every word you say, the way that you speak to young people has the potential to impact the rest of their lives, both positively and negatively. And in my case, it's hard to decide the impact because I'm still working on it. How does that interlink with your decision to host your beautiful podcast come out 
wherever you are. For those who are listening who aren't familiar with Sean's podcast, in each episode he speaks with a guest across Australia who's a member of the queer community. He talks about them, their stories, and understands what it was like for them to come out for the first time. The second season has just come out now. The first season is stunning. My favourite episode is the one with Patricia Carvelis, who hosts mm. uh, Radio National Breakfast. Was it important to you to tell the stories of coming out because of your own experience? Are you making the podcast you wish you'd had? Absolutely. Oh, 100%. Like, I can't stress enough as a young queer person growing up in the world in the 90s and 80s and 70s, there was no content available, not just for me, but for my mother. She really struggled to find anything that was going to help her help her son. And so as I got older, I really wanted access to that content. Really, I wanted to educate myself. Like, am I alone in these feelings? Am I alone in this journey? Are there other people who struggled the way that I struggled? So that's one part. The second part is it really wasn't until I was in my 30s that I started to realize I had never worked through my coming out journey. I had never talked to anyone about it. I had never unpicked the challenging responses that I heard. And then when I started to speak to other gay people, queer people at large, I realized that no one is talking about their coming out journey. It is, without a doubt, the most challenging conversation that they will ever have. In many cases, it tears families apart. In many cases, it forces queer people out onto the street. In many cases, in many countries, it is illegal and they are jailed for it. And yet when we come out of the closet and we speak our truth, we basically just close the door and we walk away forever. But inside of that closet is a young person who is still hurting in many ways. And so as I started to kind of want to revisit those conversations through therapy and having conversations with the people that I felt had wronged me or the people who had handled it beautifully. And then I started talking to my friends. I kept on hearing the same thing. To be honest, I haven't thought of it since I came out. To be honest, I've never told my mom it really hurt me when she said X, Y, Z. And that is when I was like, there is a show here. There is work to be done. I don't even care about the show at large. I don't care the format. I was like, there's work to be done. Queer people need to be allowed to revisit this time in their lives. They need to hold space for how serious and potentially traumatic that time could have been. And I would love to be a part of that if I could. I want to ask you about your own parenting now, but... In order to do that, I have to do some storytelling first, which means we have to get to how you became a parent. So tell me about meeting your now husband, Josh. I met Josh in New York City in a bathroom line at a very seedy gay bar that is ironically <laughs> called The Ritz. Oh, amazing. Um, yeah, he made fun of me. He said Santa Claus called. He wants his hat back. I was wearing a red beanie, so he wasn't like unjust in that jab. Um, but we ended up talking and we just started dating as soon as I moved to New York City 30 days later. On a, like our fourth or fifth date, I said, I love kids. And he said, do you want to have them? And I said, no way. That's for straight people. And he was like, I want to have kids. And we had like a little banter back and forth about how I had a lot of internalized homophobia about could a gay person, should a gay person even be allowed to have kids? And he was 10 years older than me and he, he had gotten through that. And I was like, no, 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 I want them. And so really that relationship formed. We fell in love quickly. We moved in after a year. We were engaged after two. We were married after three. And this is all in New York City. 
but throughout that process, basically buried very deep the idea that I could ever have what straight people have. Now, just remember back then when I'm telling these stories and falling in love with Josh, getting married is still illegal mm. in both countries, Australia and in America. And I didn't know and had never really heard of gay parents having children that were their own. I had heard of adoption, but it was, be it quite rare. It was still not a sexy topic. And so for most queer people at that time, you can totally fall in love with people and you can travel if you want. You just need to be safe. But by no means in the media where there are like examples of queer people living happy marriages and having children. That just like wasn't a part of the narrative at the zeitgeist at that time. Our choices were lifestyle choices. They were choices yeah. we made. We were still considered sexual deviants really up until the AIDS crisis in the late 80s, early 90s. And this is not unjust. It's just the framing that people had based off of the media that they consumed. And so when you're a young person living that life and people say, would you like to get married or would you like to have kids? I was like, I've never thought of it because it's not an option. It's literally illegal. Why would I think that that's an option for me? So when Josh said, do you want to have kids one day? Of course I said, no, that's for the straight people. We'll be really rich and travel and be really cute and people will laugh and we'll have funny jobs and we'll be fabulous, but we're not going to, that path, that script is not available for us. So why would I spend time considering that it's an option for me? So much of that sort of script comes from popular culture and what we see on TV and reality television, I think, plays a really big role. What do you think are some of those kind of popular zeitgeisty moments that have helped us shift that conversation? Yeah, that's really beautiful. I mean, Modern Family, Will and Grace were obviously really beautiful examples of getting to see queer people living um, happy lives, potentially outside of what we might think is normal. Will and Grace was really powerful because there was two examples of homosexual men, but they filled two very different briefs, right? You had the typical camp gay guy that we had seen on television for probably 20 years, the butt of a joke, the hairdresser, the costume designer, but then you had Will, who was masculine. And at that time in popular culture, you're starting to see a variety of examples portrayed in media. And so for young queer Sean and my husband, Josh, we found it really hard to find examples that looked like us. If you can't see yourself, it is impossible to be yourself. It is really, truly hard. And so if you think homosexuality is just Mardi Gras, if you think it's just glitter and wings and nudity, and that doesn't speak to your soul, you might struggle coming out. You might struggle finding a community. And so that show kind of kickstarted it. When I look back like through the parenting landscape, there aren't a ton of examples, to be completely honest. Tell me about conceiving your, your twins, Stella and Cooper. Tell me how that came about. And then I want to ask about being a parent. When Josh and I decided we did want to become parents, which was shortly after we got married, literally two days after, we just went down the adoption path because that was the only option that we knew. I was on Facebook one day scrolling like we always do, and I saw that one of my girlfriends from college was pregnant. And I read the post and it said, I'm currently pregnant, but not with my husband's child. And I was like, what is going on here? Why is she divulging this information? I read on and I discovered surrogacy. I had made it 24 four years 
into the human experience and had no idea that it existed. I had no idea that you could carry for someone else. And so she was caring for a gay Russian man. And I just was flabbergasted, dumbfounded, like it couldn't believe it. And what happened was a multi-week long conversation between her and I, where I started to just do research. And when I typed it into Google, the very first article I found, I think it was 2016, was an Australian article that said, Australian woman gives eggs for her gay brother. And that was the moment my life changed. That was the moment that I thought, oh my goodness, this gay man has shared his husband's sperm or partner's sperm with his sister's eggs and created children that are biologically his. That is his child as much as it is his husband's and his sister's. And I just thought, this is magical. This is beautiful. Look at the technological advancements. Is that something that might work for us? And so what we decided to do was enroll every woman I've ever spoken to and was related to in any way, shape, or form in the possibility of them donating eggs. I didn't ask. I just said, hey, look at this exists. Wow. We continued to pursue adoption as well, but we looked at surrogacy agencies And about a year later, a female member of my family offered to donate her eggs. And then a year after that, we had our twins. So a surrogate who's separate from the egg donor carried our children, our twins. She is an integral part of our lives as well. She acts as the aunt. And that is how we had Stella and Cooper. That is such a gorgeous story. But I know there will be people listening right now who are looking at surrogacy, who are going through an adoption process, who are going through IVF, who hearing those stories can be painful because when we tell those success stories, like your beautiful family, and you are in a point in your life where you haven't got to the success part, Mm. it really hurts. Sure. What was it like when you were in the middle of it? Did you feel as confident of the outcome that you've got? No, not at all. And I'm glad you're holding space for that because the reality is my audience, my network, the people I speak on behalf of every day are, are usually women. It's women, it's mothers, it's intended mothers who are most passionate about parenting content. And that's how I make a living. And so I'm aware that for women, it feels like a right to have a child and to have that taken away from them or to have that process not work out is really troubling. Josh and I went into the journey knowing that this was not a right that we had. We weren't women who could potentially carry. And so everything we were doing was a step to hack the system a little bit to make our dreams a reality. We held space for that. I completely understand that any woman listening, it is so much more emotionally challenging than what we had to go through. What is just, I guess, the dirty truth is Josh and I just wanted to love children. That's it. We loved each other and we just wanted to have a family. That's it. And what was in the way, in the hurdle in between that was a lot of money, like on the low end of the scale to go through one round of IVF is $10,000. And for some families, they'll go through 11 or 12 cycles just to make the dream a reality. Just to adopt the psychological assessments, them coming into your home, checking what you do for a living, seeing if you're suitable, 
In our case, it cost $200,000 in total from start to finish to bring our children just into the world, let alone parenting them afterwards. Now, that is a decision we made. We are privileged enough to be able to afford that. But it is really challenging to know more than anything that all you want to do is be the best father you can be and, and be a parent and get to experience that and to love children and to have all of those hurdles in the way, be it financial or emotional. And then what you add on top of that is that a large chunk of the population thinks we're disgusting, thinks we don't deserve a right to be parents, thinks that we are harming our children by bringing them into the world, that we're setting them up for failure. And so, yeah, it is without a doubt an emotional, obviously I just cried, like an emotional struggle to kind of power through and wade through. Mm -hmm. But what I kept telling myself and what we still tell ourselves is on the other end of this journey, I am never going to hold my child up and look at them and go, you cost $100,000. It was hard to bring you into existence. It's always hard when you're in the thick of it. It is always hard during the challenge. What makes it possible what makes it worth it is looking on the other end and saying, I know what the end goal is and I want to get there. So when IVF parents are talking to me, when women are dropping into my DMs and saying, I'm on my third cycle and it is so hard, you don't have to keep going through those cycles. That is a choice that you make, but you are allowed to because you are allowed to work towards a, an ultimate goal that you think will bring you happiness. And if you can, I hope that you can surround yourself with other parents who have waded through those similar waters and you can see what's on the other side. That is a uh, gift of a message uh, mm -hmm. as someone who's been through IVF. That is a gift of a message to people who would be listening right now. Now tell me about your kids. <laughs> they're wonderful. They're intense. They're annoying and beautiful and scary. And they're currently four. Um, Stella and Cooper are boy-girl twins. They have wildly different personalities. I think the great gift of having boy-girl twins is that you really get to kind of see the world as it truly is. You get to see how we treat genders differently as a society. You get to see how young people live in the world through the lens of gendered boxes. And that has really been the most exciting part of the whole experience is getting to see two people brought into the world within a minute of each other who are raised the same way at the same time by the same people. And yet the world treats them differently and they are wildly different. And I think that's really magical and exciting for us as, as parents who care, as humans who are interested in other humans. And what I mean by that is, you know, Stella's always beautiful always beautiful. The world tells her she's so beautiful, so pretty, so nice. You want a pink dress with beautiful sparkles. You're so beautiful. Look at your pretty eyes. And Cooper's never, they never comment on his physical appearance ever. He very rarely even gets handsome, even though he's a beautiful child. They're much more focused on his physicality. Yeah. You're so brave. You're so strong. Are you interested in dinosaurs or animals? Roar. And Stella is often not given the opportunity to be the fast one or the strong one, even though she is in many ways. It's funny. My son is much more sensitive and empathetic and emotional. My daughter is much more aggressive and strong and fast. And yet the world like re almost refuses to acknowledge the reality of who they are just because of the genders or the genders that they're currently presenting as. 
And I found that just a magical part of the ride is just sitting back and observing and trying my very best to diffuse any of that, like trying my best to offer gender neutral options, trying my best to give them both the same experience, trying my best to remind people every time someone says, oh, she's so beautiful. I go, you should see how smart she is too. Like adding those elements on so that we can start to change the way people think about small, young children. Your kids were just babies when you moved to Australia. Can you tell me what that was like? Did we did we live up to your expectations? It was terrible. I would never, ever suggest to anyone that you move to a new country with no job, no friends, no family, and two-month-old twins. Like, don't, don't do it. I'm just, like, I would never suggest it because parenting is already so difficult. Newborn twins is difficult. And then you add on top of that a lack of a village and you add on top of that a lack of identity because I had left my career behind before I moved here. The reality, I guess like the rude reality is men are still not really welcomed in the parenting space, even though the world is changing for the better. And even though more parents are stay at home and even dads are stay at home, and even though a lot of mom groups have changed to parenting groups. When I moved here, where I was living and the types of groups I wanted to hang out with, it wasn't an option for me. I I was quite literally told at the local mother group that it was specifically for moms and that they appreciated me trying, but that I would have to find another group. And so it was hard. It was really hard to kind of feel like an outcast. It was hard to want to be able to share in the experience with other parents, but not really be welcomed. And I understand it. I really do. The reality is I didn't give birth and I didn't have to breastfeed. And so if women want to be able to talk openly about the reality of their experience, maybe it would make them uncomfortable to have someone like me around. But I was really struggling. I was struggling emotionally. I was not handling the new role, the new move, and the lack of connection well. And I didn't really have anyone except for my husband to kind of reach out to at that time. So yeah, it was really challenging. And I think even in Australia, we're still struggling a little bit with how we welcome dads who just want to love their kids and just want to do the best they can and just want to get to the playground and talk to other parents. We're not really as inclusive yet as I would like to see us be. Hmm. How do we shift that though? Because I, you know, it's not something where you can lobby government for a change in legislation to be more inclusive at the park, right? Mm -hmm. But it is a continuing challenge for dads who are spending time, particularly I think with little children, you know, babies or very little kids. It's almost like we make more space for dads from sort of that school age Mm -hmm. kind of period. But at the early stages, we really don't. But I feel like there's a lot of hand wringing about it and not a lot of talk of, well, how do we make that cultural shift? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the truth is it's on men in many ways to do more, to walk up to the women and introduce themselves and to share their story in detail. Like I'm specifically looking for a a, a network. My wife works full-time or I'm single parenting or I'm gay. I didn't do that because when I, I think I just expected to be welcomed with open arms. And when I wasn't, I was like, okay, I'll just hide then. And so I think it's up to men. You are entering a space that has historically been female dominated and justifiably so. And if you want to place there, 
like any minority group through all of human history, then you need to be open and express yourself. The reality is the people you're speaking to, women, are the most empathetic things that have ever existed. And so they're more likely to want to help you if you can be honest. Also, I think it's up to men to communicate directly with their employers. There's a lot of excuses as to why they can't help out and why they can't parent. Oh, my company wouldn't let me or, oh, it'd be problematic. No, no, it's up to you. Women have enough burden on their shoulders. They don't need to go and fight for men. <laughs> Literally, that is the last thing that needs to happen right now. And so there's that. And then I guess on the other side of things, I believe that if you're a part of a mother's group that is specifically mom-centric, it's important for you to ask yourself, would you welcome in a single mom? And if you would, then why would you not welcome in a gay dad? Why would you not welcome in a single father, right? The goal, the purpose is to ease the transition that you're experiencing as a human into parenting. And yes, 100%, you are going to be talking about your nipples cracking because of breastfeeding or talking about the recovery period, but that's such a small window. It really is those first couple of weeks. And the reality is parenting is difficult. It is dirty. It is hard. And if a man can't handle that, then he can choose to leave. But in my experience as a gay man, I have sat comfortably in the truth of parenting by listening to what women have to say and forcing myself to sit through and ask questions and hold space for them. And so I think straight men need to do that. The reality is I think that's actually prior to the problem. We have always not welcomed men into the journey. It wasn't until the 70s that men even were allowed in to watch the birth. Now, that's obviously a bunch of men in the patriarchy going, oh, we don't want to see what's down there because then we'd understand the reality of life. But it starts that young. It literally starts right away. I asked the nurse after the children were born some questions because she was talking to me as if I was a woman. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I've never cleaned a vagina before. I don't know any of this. And she was like, to be honest, it's usually just women that do this part of the training. So I've never had to speak to just a dad before. And that to me felt like the beginning of the problem we have in an unbalanced society. If we aren't even speaking to men about how to raise their own daughters, how are they ever going to respect and appreciate and care for women as lovers or as those women get older? If your daughter has a period and then the father is never involved in assisting, how are men ever supposed to get to a place where they can be much more loving and empathetic? So I, I kind of feel like it's up to us individually. You're right, it's not a government problem. If you're a part of a mom's group and you don't welcome men currently, what can you do? Change your Facebook group page. Reach out to all of the women in your group and ask, are your husbands watching the children for the month of December? Tell them to come. And then through that opening where we're welcoming multiple genders and different sexualities into the group, we can have more challenging conversations. And then slowly over time, hopefully society changes. Sean, thank you for being such an incredible guest on The Weekend Briefing and sharing so much of your life with us. Thank you for having me. That's it for my conversation with Sean Zepps. A reminder that you can catch him all the time, guys, on his Listener podcast, Come Out Wherever You Are, which is a podcast about the coming out experience told by the people who have done it. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up. It is time for the weekend list and I for one am at a loss for what I am going to do this weekend. Bron, can you help me? 
Yes. So I went to the actual cinema last week, which I haven't done in so long. Went to see a movie. It was called Nightmare Alley, which is still around at a few cinemas. Have a look for it. I haven't seen anything about it, but it's got an all-star cast. It's got Bradley Cooper, Kate Blanchett, Tony Collette, Willem Dafoe. It was based off a 1947 film, which was itself based off a book. Had a lot of twists and turns, a bit dark. It was beautifully shot. I don't want to give too much away, but I really enjoyed it. You don't fool people's death. They fool themselves. I've given you a fortune. It's time that you delivered. When does it end? I want to know. <laughs> if you displease the right people, the world closes in on you very, very fast. Okay, that sounds good. And I cannot tell you how long it has been since I have been to a cinema. So I am absolutely here for it. I am going to recommend a book, however. I got an early copy of The Most Important Job in the World by Gina Rushton. It is a book about parenting, like you have never heard parenting discussed before. In fact, it's not really about parenting. It's whether or not you want to become a parent in the first place? And that is a huge question that forces us all to reckon with what we love and fear most about ourselves, which is how author Gina Rushton describes it. She takes us through in this gorgeous book, some of the big questions about the idea of becoming a parent, but she covers everything from whether or not it's moral to have a baby in a planet that is literally on fire. She talks about gender roles that we were assigned at birth and how you deal with that if you brought a child into the world. She talks about ascending careers and declining fertility and how to know whether or not you found the right person to parent with. I am already a parent. Uh, I've got no interest in reversing that, but oh my gosh, I wish I had had this book when I was in my twenties and grappling with whether or not becoming a mum was something I actually wanted to do. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's on pre-order now. Oh, that sounds really good. We're all obsessed with Wordle. I know I've mentioned it previously, but there's a new iteration of it and I prefer it much more than the original. So basically they give you one second of a song and you have to guess the song off the one second intro to it, which is hard, but you'd be surprised how many you'd get. And if you can't get in the first second, then it extends another few seconds and then you try and get it before the time runs out. It is fun. It's good to be competitive with some of my friends. We're sending them around in the group chats recently. So if you need something new to get competitive with, I definitely jump on hurdle.app. So H-E-A-R-D-L-E dot app. That sounds right up my alley. I'm going to get on that immediately. I have a podcast to recommend to round us out, and that is The Roxanne Gay Agenda. It is hosted by Roxanne Gay, who is the original bad feminist. She's an author and speaker and is quite extraordinary. And in The Roxanne Gay Agenda, she speaks to interesting people, mostly people of colour, mostly women, about anything that is on her agenda that day, from feminism to race to writing to art to pop culture to food, she loves baking, and of course to politics. It brings all these unique perspectives from people 
I hadn't necessarily heard of before. It's one of those podcasts where you can pick up an episode with anyone, regardless of whether you recognize the name. And by the end of it, you'll be following that person on Instagram. That's it for the weekend briefing for today. Thank you so much for being our guest. We have really enjoyed your company. If you would like to hang out with us more often, then you should subscribe to The Briefing in the Listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back in your ears bright and early on Monday morning where Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.